Our passage is Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 12. We're learning about life under the sun. We're getting insights from a man who reflects back on all that he learned in his headlong pursuit of satisfaction and meaning in life. So we're just going to jump right into the text and read it and then uh, pray for God's help to understand. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. With all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for opening up the riches of your heart to us in ways we can understand. This is a very relatable book. This is where we live and you describe it the way we experience it. But you always surprise us with things, too. In your word, there's, there's so many unexpected things. And today, there's more of that in here that points us to your goodness, points us to hope. And so would you do that again? Would you open our hearts to see what's in here uh, for our joy? Because there's a command here to joy. So, Lord, show us why we can obey that command. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you could describe what God expects of you as a follower of Jesus, what words would you use? What's your image 
of the Christian life. Here's some words that I, can, that I think of. Self-denial, as in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think about sacrifice that Jesus calls us to make for the kingdom. Labor is another word that comes to my mind. Is in Matthew 9.37, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I think that it's a lot of work to follow Jesus, to be about your Father's business. And we could add other words from Scripture, like Paul's words, sorrowful. Uh, afflicted, despised, those things are true. That will be our lot as God apportions it in His wisdom. But (laughs) those words aren't a complete picture of the Christian life as God intends. If it was, nobody would want to follow Jesus. That's all we had to look forward to. Our passage this morning reveals another description about what to expect if you follow Jesus. It's what it says that God wants us to enjoy life. <laughs> he wants us to enjoy life. Verse 7, go eat your bread with joy. Go do it. <laughs> and drink your wine with a merry heart. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Those are exhortations from God to you. Uh, to enjoy yourself. He doesn't want you to think of Christianity as all pain and no pleasure, as all sacrifice and no reward, as all labor and no rest. So God's not a killjoy. He's a good father who wants us to be happy just like any good parent wants their kids to be happy. And we can be, despite the harder things in life if we learn God's way to happiness. That's what I hope to show you from the passage this morning. And along the way, I want to deal with two imbalanced tendencies that we have on this issue of enjoying life. Um, And I'm going to call them big words, asceticism and licentiousness. And I'll explain what those are. Um, But this is a text that tells us the Christian life should be one where we enjoy life. But how do we do it, given the world that we have? Let's, let's look into the text. Uh, first, let's start with an observation. You already know this. We've heard it over and over again in Ecclesiastes. You felt it in your life. But the observation is the world is full of hard things. The world's full of hard things. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he starts out by saying in verse 1, All this I laid to heart, examining it all. What's, what's all this that he's referring to there? What's the the subject matter that he's laying to heart, that's on his mind as he's about to write Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Well, he's referring to the previous chapters where he dealt with, among other things, the frustrating paradoxes of life. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 14, I think, is a good summary of what bothers the preacher uh, of Ecclesiastes, whom we assume to be King Solomon. He says, There are righteous people, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. 
And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And that's frustrating. That's a paradox. It doesn't seem right. Um, I just read of a woman in Yemen, a very Islamic country. She was set on fire and she was killed because she left Islam and became a Christian. Meanwhile, her persecutors went unpunished. In fact, they were praised for doing it. They were rewarded for doing it. That doesn't seem right to me. It isn't right. That's wrong. But those are realities that we live with in this world. The world has sad, sad realities, frustrating paradoxes, things that happen that shouldn't. And we're just going to have to live with unanswered questions as to why that happens. That's what's on the preacher's mind as, as this chapter begins. The second thing on his mind is death. He says in verse 2, The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. And in the following verses, we know what he's talking about is death. Verse 5, the living know that they will die. The event of death is in all of our futures. There's going to be a time when verse 6 becomes reality for you and me. Forever you will have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Uh, your part in the story of this world is going to be over someday. Uh, it's going to move on without you in it. That's what he's saying. Death comes to us all. So the context of chapter 9 is, is these two things. Frustrating things that happen in life and then the certainty of death. Hard things that we have to deal with. Whether you're righteous or wicked, whether you're clean or unclean, whether you're good or evil, those are all words that he uses. It's going to happen to you. These things are going to happen. That's the world that we have. So, given that that's our world, how then should we live in light of those hard things, according to the preacher? What advice, what counsel does he have for us? Here's his counsel. Go eat your bread with joy <laughs> and drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life. That's his counsel, given the frustrating paradoxes and the certainty of death. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't expecting to read that at this point. Uh, I might have expected something more like this. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Life is just unfair, and then you die. Good luck. <laughs> that, that's more seemingly in the same kind of mood of what he's been writing here. I would have expected that. I'd be tempted to write that. But he doesn't say that. He says, go and be joyful. Go and have a merry heart. In other words, just because life's full of sad things doesn't mean you have to be unhappy. You can enjoy today. In fact, I'm telling you to go do it. I'm telling you to go and enjoy yourself. So that requires explanation, I think. Does he mean we're just supposed to ignore all the bad stuff and party all the time? Don't worry, be happy. Or let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just get all the enjoyment you can out of life because it's going to be over soon. Is that what he mean? Or does he have something else in mind? 
He has something else in mind. He has something better in mind. Because saying, don't worry, be happy, is not going to work for the husband of the wife that was burned to death in Yemen. And it's not going to work for you when you're in the hospital or when you lose your job or when you're rejected by somebody because of your faith. It's not going to work to just superficially cover that over and say, don't worry, be happy. Just ignore it all. Go have a good time. That doesn't work. We need something deeper than that. And we have something deeper. It's in this passage. God always gives us reasons for joy. It's, it's, you can do it. And he's got it in here. They're sprinkled in here like gold nuggets on the ground. And it'll be no surprise to you that it all ties in with God. God is the game changer. God is the source. God is the only reason that we can actually enjoy life given the world that we have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look through three different reasons that I see here that support this command to go and enjoy life despite the way things are. There's three solid reasons we can enjoy life despite, despite hard things. Number one, it's because you are in the hand of God. You are in the hand of God. Go back to verse 1, and let's complete the sentence. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So here's the picture. He's thinking about these unsolvable mysteries of life, why things happen the way they do. And he's thinking about death. It's all troubling. Should we despair over that? No, no, no. He says we shouldn't despair over that because here's a comforting thought. The righteous are in the hand of God. The righteous are in the hand of God. God is holding on to you. God is keeping you. God is caring for you in the midst of hard things. You see, we have a temptation. I think you and I have a temptation to see the world as just one vast ocean of upheaval and you're a tiny boat on the sea and you think of yourself as totally at the mercy of that unpredictable ocean and you think you're at the mercy of a disease for example or you're at the mercy of someone who set out to make your life miserable you feel like you're at the mercy of political decisions or you're at the mercy of the economy or you're at the mercy of whatever is happening between the U.S. and other nations and you view life that way and it's scary to think that you're just at the mercy of all these forces going on around you that you can't change and you can't stop. And you think you have no protection, nobody looking after you, nobody intervening on your behalf. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says that's not reality. God has you in his hand. He's keeping you. Your little boat won't sink. He's there for you. He's saying trust the big picture and trust the big paradoxes of life to God. Trust Him with the news. Do what Peter told us to do in 1 Peter. Cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. You're in His good and wise and loving hand. I know someone who's experiencing how powerful that truth is right now. Um, Bruce Chick is a Sovereign Grace pastor who's on the executive committee, uh, which I also serve on. 
And uh, we met a few weeks ago. Right before he came to the retreat, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. Just got the news, and then he's on a plane. (laughs) Um, Somehow managed to get through the whole week with that on his mind. Um, Went back home, found out this last Friday that the cancer has spread all over the place in her body. And her mother died of cancer at the same age she is right now. So the prognosis is six months of treatment and no guarantee that that's going to solve it. So what do you do? Where are you going to find hope? (laughs) Here's what's going on in the family right now. Uh, Just an example. This is their six-year-old daughter. They, They explain the whole thing to her. Here's what the daughter says. We believe God. He is nice to us. I love that simple faith. We believe God. This doesn't look good. This might turn out, this could be the end. But we believe God. He's nice to us. He's a father. That's getting him through. We can have joy despite the hard stuff when we know we're in God's hands and that those hands are good. But notice, this is a promise made only to the righteous, not to everybody. The righteous are in the hand of God, it says. The righteous in Solomon's time meant people who followed God with a whole heart and showed it by keeping his commandments. And that's still what it means, except that now in the New Testament, we understand that all of our righteous deeds are not truly good enough to earn the title of righteous because all of our deeds uh, fall short of God's true standard. Paul said in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. Uh, We all have sin in our life. We are unrighteous. But the good news that's been revealed in the New Testament is that we can be counted righteous through faith in Jesus Christ by putting our trust in Him, by saying, I'm the sinner, you're the Savior, come help me, (laughs) come forgive me then we get his record, his perfect record. And on that basis, we're considered righteous, we're counted righteous, we're treated as righteous in God's sight. And so we can claim every promise to the righteous in the scriptures because of being in Christ by faith, the one who died for us to remove our sins. So that's our good news. And if that describes you, if that's what you believe, as Jesus is your righteousness, then God says to you, I've got you. I have you in my hand. Don't worry about the world. Let me take care of the hard things. Let me take care of death, too. I have a good plan in all of this. And here's his plan in John 10, 28-29. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. (laughs) I've got you in my hand. The Father has you in his hand. We have you. We've got you. And you've got eternal life. Nobody's going to take that away. See, that, that's going to get you through. That, that allows you to look at the news and go, okay, in some ways that doesn't really touch me because my true life is in Christ. It's untouchable. 
And then you can be free to enjoy something. <laughs> Here's the second reason we can enjoy life despite the hard stuff. It's because God gives you gifts to enjoy. God gives you gifts to enjoy. That's the emphasis of verses 7 to 9. Not only do we trust ourselves to God, but God gives us tokens of His love along the way for our encouragement and for our enjoyment. Well, we've read these before. Let's come back to them individually. Verse 7, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. That is about the simple enjoyment of a good meal, of enjoying Food and drink. And yes, the drink mentioned is wine, an alcoholic beverage. Now, this isn't a sermon on Christian freedom as it relates to alcohol. More needs to be said about that. There can be good reasons to refrain, and some people need to. But suffice it to say, this passage doesn't attach any stigma to the simple enjoyment of food and drink. In fact, it commends it. Go and do it, says the preacher. (laughs) Enjoy that good home-cooked meal. If you've got the money, enjoy your favorite restaurant. Yes, eat, drink, and be merry. That's biblical. You might wish that all of God's commands were that easy to, to say yes to. Notice the motivation that he gives for doing this. It's because God has already approved what you do. What does that mean? God has already approved what you do. That just means God has already approved your enjoyment of his gifts. He takes pleasure in your pleasure as you receive gratefully his gifts. That doesn't mean that God approves of every indulgence or overindulgence that we might make of a good thing. Clearly, other scriptures warn against gluttony and drunkenness. Paul weeps in Philippians 3.19 over enemies of Christ whose God is their appetite. Uh, He says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. So there's limits on enjoyment. There's excess but clearly, uh, so clearly God's not giving his stamp of approval to any and all indulgence. It's simply a statement saying that he's given common grace gifts like food and beverages to the people he's created, and we honor him when we enjoy them as gifts from God. I like what Sidney Gradonis says in his commentary on this passage. He says, Since food and drink are gifts from our Heavenly Father, We should enjoy them. If we do not enjoy God's gifts, we dishonor the giver. Then we are like children who receive gifts at Christmas, take off the wrapping and simply toss the gifts aside. Our enjoyment of God's gifts is an expression of our gratitude to Him. And I would reference that thought with 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Going on to verse 8, we see more on this theme. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments in the hot, dry Middle East 
were your nice clothes, your special occasion clothes, and the clothes that kept you cool because they reflect the hot sun. Oil was a way of keeping your skin healthy as well as making you smell nice instead of like a camel. <clears throat> so we translate that into today's setting. It's, it's like saying this, take care of yourself. It's okay to make yourself look nice. Put on your good clothes. Have the appearance of a person who's cared for. After all, God does care for you abundantly through Christ. Why look and act as if you mean nothing to anyone? Again, that can be taken to extremes in the scriptures, warn against it. For example, Paul counseled the women of the church in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, to not let your adorning be external, including clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So this isn't about showing off. This isn't about you know, dressing in a, your best clothes every day and showing off. Uh, the point is simply that if God is for you, there's a sense in which all of life is a celebration. Why not carry yourself that way? Verse 9, very direct about enjoying life. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. That's your portion, that's your portion from God to enjoy life and specifically here with the wife whom you love, with the person you're married to. This is about God's gift of companionship. If you're married... God has given you a lifelong partner to enjoy life with all your days. Not just to be married and maybe have kids and pay bills and keep a house, but to enjoy all the days of your vain life, which means fleeting, vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's short. It passes by quickly, but enjoy it. But enjoy it together. That, that's his goal here. Uh, back in June, Mary and I had the opportunity to get away to the place where we spent our honeymoon 28 years ago. It's called the North Shore. It's the tip of Minnesota that reaches around Lake Superior. And we had a little cabin there um, 28 years ago. And so we went back. We tried to get the exact same cabin, but we didn't know for sure which one it was. There's <laughs> like 10 of them. And so, but we got right in the vicinity anywhere, anyway. And so I was thinking about, you know, when I'm planning for it, I'm thinking like, I don't know, that's time and it's money and we got bills to pay and we got to fix this and maybe we shouldn't go. But I did it. <laughs> and we enjoyed it. And then afterwards I read this and I'm thinking, okay, that was all right. That was a good thing to do. Yeah, we, we could have fixed the garage door opener. Or we could have gone to, that, to the North Shore. I think we made a good choice. You know, we can still lift the garage manually, right? Um, enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think there's application to you if you're not married. Friendship is a gift of companionship. When God created us, he made us social creatures, right? Um, he didn't make just one in the garden. He made two. 
And then cities formed. Why do cities form? People want to be together. There's, there's benefit in being together. Uh, that's why there's a mighty throng in heaven and not just individual isolated people sort of sprinkled all around some future earth. But there is a throng, right, together. That's why the church exists. We're social. And part of that gift of God is that we can be friends and enjoy life with people. And not retreat into isolation. That's why I think it's a good thing that we're going camping um, together. We're going to spend like two solid days eating stuff and miniature golf maybe or whatever. <laughs> These are gifts of God. right? That's part of spiritual life. That's part of obedient life is to be with people and enjoy them. It's a gift of God. We should enjoy it. So, bottom of line, not all of the Christian's enjoyment is reserved for heaven. I mean, we know that's going to be good. And our life often stinks right now, we feel like. But God says, but I'm putting things in your life right now. Even now. It's not all future. It's right now. There's things for you to enjoy right now. If you have eyes to see them, if you take the time, if you appreciate it as a gift from me and not just something that's there, but it's me giving you this, then you have reason today to enjoy today. And it's not all expensive. It could be the sunset that he gave you. It could be the sound of that baby that you love. It could be that unexpected gift card somebody gives you and say, thank you for this or that. That's not just random stuff that happens. God's doing that. He's saying, here, I'm a loving father, and I know that life is hard, so here's something, and here's something, and here's something. And we can enjoy that. He wants us to. Now, before we move to the last point, I want to stop and address two misunderstandings about enjoying God's good gifts. And I mentioned these at the beginning, those two big words. Asceticism, licentiousness. I want to explain what those mean. First, asceticism. This is the thought that the truly godly person abstains from most, if not all, forms of earthly pleasure. That it has to be worldliness to go to a nice restaurant or to a movie. That you shouldn't enjoy yourself too much at a sporting event. You should never spend money on a vacation. It could have been used for ministry. Things like that. That's asceticism. I tend toward this myself. I remember when I could afford a nicer car when I was a scientist, I always bought junkers because I thought that was the more spiritual thing to do. That I shouldn't own a newer car. That it had to be a junker. I still buy junkers, but now it's because that's what I could afford. <laughs> but then it was a it was a it was a belief. Asceticism doesn't square with this text, and it doesn't square with what Paul said in Colossians. He said in Colossians 2, 20-23, Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, it looks more godly to deprive yourself of pleasures. 
But the real problem isn't in the handling, the tasting and touching of legitimate pleasures. The problem is in the sinful cravings of the heart. And you aren't going to cure those with regulations. You only cure those by having a heart filled with satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And if you have that kind of heart, then handling, tasting, and touching will not lead to selfish indulgence of the flesh. But the rules won't do it. It, It's not better to drive a junker than a a nicer car if you're trying to do it to look godly or feel godly. No, it's got to be in the heart. That's where godliness really happens. So asceticism isn't, isn't commended here. It's rejected. And that leads to the second error we can fall into. This is the other side of the fence. This one, I think, is a lot more common. That's the error of licentiousness, which is the thought that freedom in Christ means freedom to indulge yourself in any pleasure as long as it isn't obviously sinful. Or in some cases, maybe even if it is. A person can think, well, God deals with me by grace, not law. My sins are forgiven. He accepts me as I am. He wants me to be happy. He's for me. So surely, if something makes me happy, I can do it. And I can do it a lot, as much as I want. That's the thinking there. I could say a lot about that, but I'll restrict it to just this one warning, which is that you become a slave of whatever you depend on for happiness. You become a slave of whatever you depend on for happiness. I get that idea from 1 Corinthians 6.12. There was a slogan going around the church of Corinth where they were saying, all things are lawful for me. So hey, it's okay for me to eat this or drink that or do this activity. It's lawful. Nothing wrong with it. To which Paul countered, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So in other words, yes, you can eat steak, but overindulging in steak will enslave you. The same goes for any hobby, pursuit, or person. If we find ourselves defending our indulgence, we've probably become a slave to that thing. Because we feel like, i got to have it, and I have a right to have it. And you can't tell me I can't do it. And that thing has replaced God in our affections. It's become a functional object of worship. There was a time when running and hiking and camping were too important for me. Um, that's what made me feel like I was really living the good life, doing those things. Thankfully, and in part because of injuries and getting older, um, I I don't look to those things quite the same way I used to. I still enjoy them, but now I enjoy them as simply as good gifts from God, not as my source of life. I don't have to have them. I don't have to do it. They're not essential to my well-being. Christ alone is essential, and the life that we have in Him is essential, but licentiousness leads to making gods out of our pleasures. We feel like we need them. And then that makes them no longer legitimate pleasures. I like what David Gibson said in a recent article on Crossway's website. He was speaking about this passage. He said, In the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. 
I think that's insightful. In the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. In other words, you can only truly enjoy something if you don't look to it for your ultimate happiness. If you can do without it, if it isn't essential to your sense of well-being. Because if you view it as essential, you're going to become a slave to it. You have to have it. You have to have more of it. It has to be good every time. And if it's not good, I'm going to do it again, and maybe it'll be better next time. And we pursue this joy, this enjoyment, this pleasure, and it keeps getting smaller and smaller, and our pursuit keeps getting more and more ravenous. Everything in this life has flaws in it. It cannot, it will not deliver the satisfaction our souls require. The only way we can enjoy God's good gifts is if our joy and satisfaction is in God. (laughs) And we say, I'll accept your gifts, but I'm not going to demand them. If you don't give them to me, great. I trust you, you're good. You're the source, not the gift. That's the only way we can legitimately enjoy true pleasures. I think it would be a good exercise to ask yourself, what pleasure you think you couldn't give up and still be happy? Whatever that is, lay that on the altar before God and say, I don't want to be a slave to this. This is yours to give or take away. Ask for the grace to let it go if it's interfering with your love for Christ. All right, one more reason from the passage we can enjoy life, despite the hard stuff, is because God has given you something worthy to do. God has given you something worthy to do. Let me read again, starting in verse 9 and into 10. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. So he's talking about a portion here, a portion, something God's given you, God has allotted to you, that involves the enjoyment with your wife if you're married, but it also enjoys the toil that he's given you. That's part of your portion, that you should enjoy what he's given you to do. And that's a theme that we've actually seen a a few times already in Ecclesiastes. Uh, The portion is to enjoy what God's given you to do as far as toil goes. And verse 10 continues the theme, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So what that's saying is God put things to do in your path. Uh, Various opportunities at which you can toil. Your hand finds them because they're, they're right there. They present themselves. And what we're to do is to pick one of those things that's in front of us to do and then go for it. Go all in. Do it with your might. It might be your career job or it could be something you do alongside your career, but you accept it as something God put in your path. And if God's put it in your path, then it's a worthy thing to do. Uh, it's, it's an image that traces back to the Garden of Eden where God put the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to keep it. He gave them freedom to act as his representatives in the world to, to do stuff, 
to, to, to mine out of this world the bounty that's there to create good things, to, to be godlike in this sense, if we can talk that way, uh, of creating after our creator, uh, of, of showing his character and his nature in the world by what we do. That was their job in the garden, and that's still our job. It's a, it's a creation mandate. It's part of being made in the image of God. Uh, to bring forth bounty and good things and to display his character in this world. That's the ultimate thing he's given us to do. And he's saying, go do it. Uh, You have a specific thing. This other person has a different thing, but I've put it in front of you, so go after it. Go do it. Don't be half-hearted. And there's enjoyment in being involved in what God's called you to do, created you to do, and put in your path to do. To, to walk in the good steps that he's put before you. There's enjoyment in that. Um, we get to be points of light in darkness in this world. Uh, in the sharing of the gospel and in living as God intended us to live, to show the world something different. We get to do that. It's like Sam saying to Frodo in the return of the, of the king, uh, there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Uh, you know, he's questioning whether this quest is really going to do anything. And he's like, no, but there's something good in it. Let's keep going. <clears throat> I'll give you examples of what this looks like, I think. Doing it with all your might. Your portion that God's given you. One, one person, it might look like giving yourself to raising up children and passing on a love for Christ to the next generation. That's, in fact, one of the main ways the church continues from one generation to another. <laughs> is parents investing in children and putting in their heart a vision of Christ. That's worthy. That's worth giving your life to. Maybe it's one example. Another one is um, you decide to take a solid direction in some field of interest instead of just being on the fence and dabbling in ten different things. You know, never really committing to anything, kind of keeping your options open all the time. I think the Lord would say, find something, do it. (laughs) You don't know how it's going to turn out. Get counsel, see if this fits, but at some point, do it and see what God does. You know, I, I became a chemical engineer and now I'm not that anymore. It was the right thing to do then, it's not the right thing to do now. So you don't have to know the whole next 20 years, just... Start. That might be what it looks like. Um, For somebody else, it looks like accepting that out-of-the-blue opportunity that falls into your lap, uh, that takes you in in a direction that you weren't expecting. I'm I'm thinking of Todd Santee's in Bolivia right now. He's at the orphanage down there. Four months ago, he had Bolivia wasn't even on his mind at all. Uh, Now he's there. Why is he there? This thing dropped out of his out of the sky on him. It's like the opportunity presented itself. Why not? He's got the time on his hands. He had the money. Yeah, there's some danger on those crazy roads in Bolivia, but go for it. We'll see what God does, right? That kind of thing can be um, whatever your hand finds to do. Or it might be a vision that God puts on your heart for some new worthy venture. Uh, Again, with counsel, because we can be wrong about things. We can get an idea, and it's like a terrible idea, and it would only take one person to to inform us of that. (laughs) if we would just listen to them. Uh, but you might have a burden for something, a vision of something. I just really feel like I'm supposed to do this thing. And if everybody says, well, yeah, why not? Um, I'm thinking of some ladies, single ladies, young 20s 
in our church back in Minnesota that we came from, um, they've been going back and forth to this Bolivia orphanage for years, and they got it in their head that we're going to start a street ministry in a different city in Bolivia to, like, the lowest of the low, like the rejected people, uh, the scum of the earth who are on the street. That's what they're going to do. One person's already moved there permanently. Two more are getting their social work degrees here because it's required by Bolivia, and they're all going down there. They're not waiting around for some other opportunity. They're like, let's do this. Maybe God puts something like that in your heart. The point here is that even though the world's full of hard things, we can enjoy life by taking advantage of the worthy, God-honoring, kingdom-advancing possibilities that God puts before us. We have the privilege of bringing good into the world, in our little pocket of the world, whatever that is. One good thing at a time, one venture at a time, and tell the time that he calls us home to glory. And that could be sooner than we think, because that's how this passage ends, with a reminder that you don't know how long you have. Verse 12 says, man does not know his time. You don't know. Uh, I, I saw two brothers in January um, who are both gone now because they both had cancer, and uh, one of them is his memorial services today. He died this last week. We don't know. We don't know. Man knows not his time. It suddenly falls upon them, it says. You and I have this short window of opportunity to to seize the day, as it were, for the glory of God in the world. And the Lord would have us do it. So, in conclusion, what do we take from this chapter? I think the writer of Ecclesiastes, indeed God himself says, enjoy the life I've given you. Yes, there are hard things in the world. But I've got you in my hand, so trust me on this. Let me take care of the big picture. You do what's in front of you. Trust me, I've got you. And I'm giving you gifts along the way because I know that it gets tough. And so look for them. They're, they're, they're going to be there. They're going to be all along the road. I'm, I'm going to leave them out for you. Take advantage of that. Enjoy that. Do it. And meanwhile, I've given you purpose. I've given you worthy things to do. I've put things in your path. And you get to be one of my representatives in this world as long as I've given you to be in it. And there's going to be reward. There's eternal reward for it. That's a life we can enjoy. That's a life that makes a difference. Let's pray. You are gracious, Lord. So thank you for that. Uh, We get distracted. Sometimes the gifts become our hope instead of the giver because we can see the gifts. We can't see you. But Lord, by your Spirit, give us new eyes to see the greater joy of the giver behind it. Fill us up with joy in Jesus Christ so that all the good gifts that you give us, we can rightly enjoy because we don't worship those things. They don't have a hold on us. They're not our masters. So, Lord, free us up to enjoy life as you've given it to us to enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.